And hello and welcome everyone to this week's edition of Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm Jake Novak. And again, you can always follow me on Twitter for many of the things I'll be referencing in this edition of Novak Now and many of the other podcasts and archived recordings of this radio program. My Twitter feed is at JakeJakeNY. It's uh, Jake two times, at JakeJakeNY, with the NY for New York. And you'll be able to follow almost like a stream of consciousness type of uh, feed, as they say, of, of what I'm thinking about, what other stories that I think are very important. And again, links to some of the things I'm referencing here for those of you who want to check more of it out, check my facts, or uh, share it with others. Um, I want to talk in this edition of Novak Now about water. On the surface, I want to talk about water, but I also want to talk go deeper, and no pun intended, I want to go deeper underneath the surface of just water and talk about how much there is to learn from the breakthroughs in water conservation and purification that have come out of Israel over the last many decades. Um, There is so much to be excited about just from the individual discoveries. But just like when we are learning Torah or learning, you know, our Bible, uh, there's what we know, what's called in Hebrew is Peshat and Drash, the very, very on the surface lesson, which is, can be very, very exciting and very, very interesting. And then the more derived learning, the more, the, the further digging deeper for some deeper meaning. And I think in the case of what we've seen with water, there's a lot to, for, you know, for us to dig deeper with. Um, so why am I talking about water specifically this week? Well, the reason is there is a story coming out of Israel just in the last couple of days that Israel is going to be giving a couple of its very uh, powerful machines that take water out of the air, and each one of those machines can make more than 800 liters of water a day, cleaning, clean, drinkable water, let alone water you can use to, to irrigate a field or something like that. So each of those machines, so you're talking about 1,600 liters of clean water to a part of the country of Colombia in, in South America, or I should say Latin America, that is dealing very badly with uh, some very bad flooding and some other issues. And the funny thing about flooding is one of the first things you run out of in, in, in a flood is clean drinking water. You know, it's a little counterintuitive. You think, oh, there's plenty of water everywhere. Well, of course, you can't drink the flood water. It's, it's not drinkable. It's not potable. It's not usable for even for irrigation. And it ruins a lot of what was the clean water supply. Uh, overruns it, makes it foul, the whole thing. So, it's one of those it's one of those weird things in nature that floods make clean water even more scarce in places where it's scarce and and in places where it isn't scarce it makes it scarce. So uh, Colombia has been dealing with this terrible flooding and Israel is going to be giving it a couple of those machines and obviously that's you know a very nice story on its on the just on the level on the surface of that story great story we love hearing these kinds of stories about how Israel helps impoverished or in the case of in this case nations that are really dealing with with natural disasters you've heard me say before on previous editions of, editions of Novak now about how the hottest division in the Israeli in the IDF right now in the Israeli defense forces after troops finish their basic training you know they can they can they can request to go to a certain unit and of course they can do that even before they start with the basic training but the point is it's a very hot unit to get involved in that disaster response unit in the IDF, that that part of the Israeli army that goes all over the world on a moment's notice, drop of a hat, 
and helps out with earthquake victims, helps out with flooding, helps out with fires, and immediately knows how to set up field hospitals, immediately knows how to help people. It's, it is such, as we say in Hebrew, a kiddush Hashem, such a, such a great honor to the, given to the Jewish people as a whole and to you know, God as a whole when, when Jews act this way and when the state of Israel acts this way. And it's been going on for so long. I remember the first time I heard about this being, I want to say 1989, there was a terrible earthquake in Turkey, I think. And the Israeli army went and immediately helped them out. And I think, I'm sure there were instances of that, of this going on before, but it's a big, and so a lot of the young people who are in the IDF aspire to be in that, uh, that unit because, uh, you know, they're, they're doing such tangible good right away every time they go somewhere. And second, I think they get to, you know, they get to do some traveling overseas to sometimes really far away places, which is always something that in my, in my experience, most Israelis jump at the chance to get, uh, a, a chance to go far away and 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 experience some parts of the world where it's sometimes you know, they can feel pretty isolated in Israel. Israel's nothing as nowhere near as isolated as it was in the fifties or the sixties and even in the seventies. But for those of you who remember what it was like in the nineteen sixties in Israel, it was very rare for an Israeli to be able to leave the country at all. And it was either the expense of the trip that was really hard, or they just were barred from going to so many places. They were really an island. Uh, in many ways and, and isolated from the rest of the world. So I think that there's still a part of the culture in Israel, maybe it's passed down from their parents who remember the times of the 60s and 70s and the 50s especially, that they like the, to get that chance to do some some overseas travel. But it's definitely a very popular unit, and I think the biggest reason why it's popular is not the, the chance to travel, but I think the biggest reason it's popular is because they get to do that. You know, imagine being in, in, in any job, let alone in, in, a, in an army, and everything that you do, every minute of the day, helps people. I mean, to a point where it's not even like an argument that has to be made. It's like obvious that you're helping people. You're setting up a field hospital. You're setting up a food tent. You're, doing, you're, you're helping clear a road. I mean, it's, it's quite nice. So the, this is part of that. I mean, obviously, I, this is not a case where the Army needs to go and maintain these machines and that kind of thing. But it's still very, very nice. And these are kinds of stories that we love to hear out of Israel. And I noted when the story came out on Friday morning in the Israeli news media on my own Twitter feed, which is, again, why you have to follow me at Jake Jake and why I noted this. And I said, you know, this is just one example of the many breakthroughs that have come out of Israel when it comes to water conservation, uh, for lack of a better word, water creation, and certainly water uh, purification, you know, it, it, the desalination, things like that. There has been a major a, a number of breakthroughs. Now, for those of you who have been visiting the land of Israel on many occasions over the period of the last, I'd say, 50 years. You don't even have to go longer than that. But let's say you've been visiting Israel on and off or you've been to Israel a couple of times anytime between now and 1969, let's say. Or I wouldn't even go back even more. I would, I would go actually not as far back, just really the, the 70s and, and the 80s. <laughs> you see the day and night change in Israel when it comes to water. Now, I can tell you, when you went to a hotel in Israel, probably all the way through the late 80s, you know, you used to get a little lecture when you checked in, or at least when you went into the hotel bathroom with all the signs and, 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 and notifications you would see that really made you feel guilty about turning on the faucet. <laughs> I mean, they really were, were, they were so worried about people coming to these hotels and, you know, maybe kids fooling around with the water and, doing, and, and they just, you know, the, the, the drinkable water supply in Israel wasn't really strong, uh, wasn't really large. Uh, it was desert country for, you know, for, you know <laughs> so it wasn't that hard to understand why. 
Um, the quality of the drinking water, all not all that great. Uh, I was one of the many people, you know, you didn't need to go to Mexico to have a little bit of a stomach problem from drinking the water. I got one pretty badly when I was uh, the summer that I was 16 years old in Israel. The summer of 1987, uh, when I was 16 and a half. So, you know, look, there was definitely uh, issues with water. And there was always a dire threat to Israel's water supply just around the corner all the time. And Israel solved the problem. I mean, between desalination, between these machines that I talk about that take drinkable water out and create drink, drinkable water out of the air, and the, the drip irrigation technology, which basically uses drops of water where a lot more water used to have to be used to get the same results from ag- in agriculture. Israel's really solved this problem to the point where it's obvious for many years now it has been something that they, you can export to foreign countries. And... There are many different companies in Israel. These are government-owned companies, yet these are not companies that are going public, but some of them may do so in the the coming years and months. Uh, One is called Mikorot, and another is called Nitafim. These are amazing companies. Now, there's another thing that's happened just recently. It happened, really, it was just announced just in December, and I thought this was, this should have been, I mean, listen, I'm not naive, I know why it wasn't, but I thought this, this should have been one of the top stories of that day when the story came out in December, and I thought it should be a top story that we still talk about amongst ourselves constantly. And that is, in December, Nitafim came, was, it showed really, really promising and basically definitively promising results. I mean, there's no debate. Fantastic results in their experiments in using drip irrigation to grow rice. Now, why is this such a big deal? Obviously, drip irrigation is a big deal in and of itself. It doesn't really... It's, it, it, you know, it may feel like it's been around for a little while now and it's not something to go nuts about. But when you talk about rice and drip irrigation, you're really into a new undiscovered country. For those of you who know a little bit about agriculture, and I don't expect a lot of you, especially those of you living in the New York City area, to know much about you know, agricultural stuff, and that's okay. For those of you listening in Iowa, Nebraska, Kansas, I hope you are a little bit more up on all of this. Especially Iowa, because I'm going to talk about rice. Rice paddies, the the place where they grow rice, mostly in Asia, rice paddies require a tremendous amount of water. They are not an environmentally friendly crop for two reasons. One, like I said, they require a just a boatload of water. You got to really flood the rice paddy. Moreover, when you flood a rice paddy, that's going to be what you grow there. You will not be able to do crop rotation probably on that spot ever again. As we know, crop rotation is crucial for agriculture to be successful in, a, in any given part of the world. It's one of the reasons why people believe that the sabbatical year, as we say in Hebrew, Shemitah, um, had roots not only in religious law in Judaism, the idea that you had to stop you know, growing uh, for a year every seven years, uh, certain parts of you know, your, your fields and your farms, uh, a lot of people feel that there was a somewhat of an early understanding of crop rotation in that rule as well. That was, you know, obviously it came from the Bible, so we're not talking about, you know, a bunch of people getting together and, and, and a council voting on it and saying, hey, okay, we're going to do Shemitah. But the idea, we're not we're going to do a sabbatical year, but the, clearly there are some very big positives in there. Well, you can't do crop rotation in rice paddies. It's just, it's, it's basically, you know, it, it's spoiled for anything else. And the problem is that rice is the dietary staple for the most populous parts of the world. You know, Asia is still the most populous continent 
And we're talking about billions and billions of people who re- rely on rice to, to survive. And this conundrum of the fact that it's really not sustainable as it is grown now. But, but the Israelis now, Netafim in particular, in actually a test that was done in Italy of all places, but it doesn't matter where they do it, have shown that they, can, they have figured out a way to apply drip irrigation to the growing of rice. And it is really not an exaggeration. I mean, a lot of the things you've heard me say, I think on previous editions of Novak Now over the last three years, you've probably thought, well, you know, this is a little bit of an exaggeration. And then you look into it. If you, you know, if you look at my Twitter feed and look at some of the links and do some of your own research, hopefully you come to the conclusion that Jake, you know, that I'm not uh, exaggerating. Hey, Jake isn't exaggerating. He's really, this is a very big deal. Well, this is a huge deal, folks. And this happened in December. It should have been a lead story all over the news. But, you know, we've talked on, also on previous editions of Novak Now, why positive news, good news doesn't get the proper coverage. And when good news comes out of Israel, there's a whole additional set, there's an additional set of reasons why it doesn't get enough coverage. But I'm happy to say that on Friday, when I posted the story about those machines going to Columbia... Uh, my friend and, and I, I think, you know, one of the more brilliant people on the internet right now, Scott Adams, who you may know as the creator and continuing soul, uh, uh, mind, uh, you know, brain, uh, <laughs> brain behind the Dilbert comic strips, who's also just very brilliant about a lot of other things. He's not just a cartoonist. Uh, he decided to uh, talk about it as well and to retweet it. And he made it a part of it. He does a video every day for about, I, I want to say, maybe 45 minutes to an hour starting at 10 a.m. You can go onto his feed. It's called Scott Adams Says, at Scott Adams Says, all, all one word, of course. And on Friday, he made a kind of the lead story that he was talking about it. And I, I really appreciate that. And what's really interesting is as much as he made a, as he explained how big this is, and he, he really focused on one of the things that he's been very, very smart to focus on for a long time, which is that doomsday scenarios or computer models that predict the future and all that kind of stuff have to be taken with a grain of salt, or in this case, a grain of rice. Ha ha. The, you have to understand that these models, these predictions cannot compute, cannot take into account amazing scientific breakthroughs that can solve these problems. All they can do is take what's currently going on now in, for example, the environment. And if nothing changes, they can tell us what, nothing major changes, they can tell us what we can expect in 20, 30, 50 years and maybe it's accurate and maybe it isn't, but what we do know for sure is that they cannot factor in a breakthrough that might solve or change the, the existing pattern. And this is a very big part of, of Scott's um, message that he, he talks about all the time, specifically with global warming. I mean, I, I'm not a global warming denier, but one of the things that bothers me about global warming doomsayers is they do exactly what I just said. They're kind of like computer models. They're like human computer models. They don't factor in the possibility that some of these problems may be solved. And you can't do that. I'm not expecting them to do that. But they also need to understand, they need to be a little bit less pessimistic based on the fact that there have been a lot of other disaster type problems that have been solved. And water is one of them. Now, I want to talk again about water because for those of you who have a good memory of the last 30 years in America, you might remember that when the Cold War started to really end, in 89, 90, 91, certainly by 1992, when the, the height of the Cold War ended, and we ended this period of what was almost 20 straight years in America, maybe even more, I'd say probably close to 30 years, 
certainly from the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis all the way through 1992, so we are talking about 30 years, where the main doomsday scenario, the scary thing that they were always talking about either in the straight news or in the entertainment media was nuclear war. And rightfully so. Nuclear war is pretty darn scary. And it reached a crescendo with TV movies like The Day After, uh, cinematic movies like Testament. Uh, you know, you can choose. There were a number of realistic style nuclear war type scenario movies that came out on either television or cinematically during the early 80s, especially, that really ramped up fear. And I think it was a fear that was somewhat justified. I don't think it was completely justified at the level that, that, that it was depicted, but we do know that there we had some close calls. I mean, during the height of the Cold War, the Cuban Missile Crisis, the more you, we learned about it, apparently it was more of a close call than we thought. Um, there's various reports about the, the, the Soviets at one point getting a false report on their computer models, speaking of computers again, uh, that a major invasion from the United States uh, Air Force was coming, and that you know there may have been that may have been a close call because they may have wanted to respond with nuclear weapons, and obviously that invasion was not really happening. So certainly that was something to worry about. But I, I noticed in the mid-90s, the news media, the entertainment media, and the culture in America trying to start basically hoping to cling on to a new doomsday scenario, one that did not involve nuclear war because people were less worried about it with the Cold War ending. And one of the real doomsday scenarios that the news media and some politicians and certainly some scientists started to grasp, really grasp hold of, was the water shortage doomsday scenario. We really started to see a lot of information and a lot of stories about how the the amount of clean water on the earth was no way going to be able to sustain the current population growth levels. And I remember this got so into the pop culture that we started to hear celebrities talk about it. You know, once the celebrities start with the wear a red ribbon or whatever it is for whatever cause they want to talk about, then you know you've really reached a good saturation point for your doomsday cause or scenario. And I remember Stephen King going on CNN saying, you know, I don't know why we're talking about anything else when I see that 60% of the world isn't going to have enough water. That's scarier than any of my movies or novels. Ha ha. You know, no, I mean, that was what we saw a lot of. And here we are, 25 years later or so, and a lot of these problems have been solved, and they've been solved not just by ingenious individuals, but Israelis who had this issue was not a tomorrow doomsday issue for them far off. This is something that they, would, they had been dealing with since the inception of, forget about the inception of the state of Israel, since the beginning of probably all life in what is now the land of Israel. And the very important place that water, fresh water especially, holds in the Jewish religion, in our Jewish laws, and obviously in Christianity as well. I mean, they, they're, they're, they have baptizing, obviously, derived from their Jewish roots, but it's, it's important to them as well. You can see how important it was to, to any culture. They understand that water is life. And they understood it, especially in a, in a, in a nation where there wasn't always fresh water uh, enough for everyone. So, you know, you, you have all those things going on. And, I th- and when, the pe- when you have a combination of a really pressing need and really resourceful and smart people in the same place, you know, the chances of those problems being solved are really, really good. Unfortunately, we have a lot of natural disasters and problems in countries where there's not a lot of educated people, 
I'm not saying that people aren't smart or, you know, give them a formal education and they might be smarter than any of us, <laughs> any of us by far. But certainly, educa- so that's why I use the word educated as opposed to smart, because that's not fair to say they're not smart. Who knows? But you got a lot of countries all over the world where there are not enough educated people. And they are faced with terrible environmental and other types of challenges. And I'm convinced that if there was a more educated population in these places where these disasters were occurring or were just around the corner, they would be solved. And Israel is a great example of, of, of that theory, I, I think really proves that theory. But, you know, you can choose to agree or disagree with it, but I think it's kind of an elementary, elementary at this point based on what I'm talking about. And, of course, that brings me to another really deeper lesson that we really have to understand when it comes to anything coming out of Israel. You know, I'm not naive. I know that we're not going to have a lot of good news stories in the news media because the news media is very, very focused on negativity. And, I, and as you've heard me say over the last three years here on Novak Now, that's gotten even worse. I couldn't believe it if you had told me three years ago that it would get even worse with the focus on negativity and tearing people apart and divisiveness and all that kind of stuff, but it has. But to give the news media some credit here, I understand that it's just, it's very, very hard to try to get the attention of any audience without throwing in a frightening element. Now, my theory has always been when you report, you can report good news, and you, but you, you don't have to give up on your audience size. You don't have to give up on audience enthusiasm. How do you do that? You remind them of how scary the problem was before it was solved. So it's kind of what I'm doing with you right now. I told you about all these doomsday scenarios about water that were just, no pun intended, that were flooding the American news media and even the entertainment media in the mid-90s and trying to remind everyone how scary it was. And so I'm still using the scare tactic in a way. I'm just using it in a different way because I'm going very quickly, shifting very quickly to the fact that a lot of these problems have been solved. And the pride that I hope a lot of us listening uh, feel in the fact that those problems have been solved by Israelis. But here's the issue here. So why doesn't it get covered? So I've talked about the first reason. You know, there, there, there's just a, always going to be a, a much more difficult hurdle to clear for a positive news story, no matter how positive it is. I mean, we, we've had, for example, incredible advances in the war on cancer in the last four years that haven't got the time of day, haven't been given the time of day in in any media whatsoever, really, other than just the medical journals. And maybe some of the more science, scientific journals, but certainly not into the mainstream, like you're going to see it on World News Tonight or something like that, or on the front page of a major paper. So there's that problem. The, the second hurdle is, yeah, I mean, there's not a great love of Israel in a lot of the world news media, and good news coming out of Israel is going to have that bias working against it. But there's a third bias that I want to finish up. And, and make sure that by, by recognizing and making sure that you recognize it as well, because it's very, very important. And it's one of those things that Israel faces that has nothing to do with Judaism. There's nothing to do with anti-Semitism. There's nothing to do with um, it's, it's the enemies that are, you know, that, that border the country or at least close by. <laughs> you know, Israel's making more peace deals every day with some of those border countries. So I don't want to say that they're surrounded anymore literally surrounded anymore by enemies because I think obviously the most dangerous enemies of Israel while they are close by are no longer necessarily on the border. They certainly have a very menacing neighbor on the border in Syria. Um, And that problem has not been solved. But anyway, 
I do think that there is a, a hurdle that stories, good news stories out of Israel have to clear that is very, very unusual that has nothing to do with Judaism, that has nothing to do with the Arab-Israeli conflict, that has nothing to do with politics. I think it has to do with philosophy, a philosophy that does, you know, it does bleed into politics. It's not completely apolitical, but, but hear me out on this. There, if you can somehow divorce Israel from the fact that it is a Jewish state, just for a minute, this is just a hypothetical. Obviously, I never want anyone to really do this on a permanent uh, basis. But if you can somehow divorce yourself, just for a second, just for a second, pretend that Israel is not the Jewish state. Just imagine for that, that minute that it's just a regular country. Well, it's important to understand that Israel is a major threat to those who politically, and again, this is political, it's not, it's not completely divorced from political, but for those who have a political or non-political stake in telling everybody in the world that the world's problems cannot be solved for the most downtrodden people and they just must be helped by other nations, you cannot expect them to pull themselves up by their bootstraps. There are people like, you know, certain members of Congress who, who like to talk about how saying people can overcome their own problems is not a nice thing to say. It's, it's, it's outrageous. And of course, we must do everything we can. Those, the, the powers that be must give charity or they must completely absorb those who are, who are not in power and those who are not uh, dealing with a better economic situation or a better political situation or a better health situation. And along here comes Israel, the state of Israel, not the ancient state of Israel. But here comes Israel where all of a sudden the most downtrodden people in the world at the time of the establishment of the state of Israel, the most downtrodden people, downtrodden people, downtrodden is the word, not only establish a state, but have in less than a real you know, natural lifetime, at least for in the Western world, have created an economic, technological, defense and I would say even cultural powerhouse. And for those who want to either profit financially or profit politically from, the, from, from a belief system that only the powers that be can create, empower other nations and empower other people and that people can't bring themselves up and out of, out of the hole themselves, that self-reliance is a lie. Israel is a huge threat. It's a very uplifting story of humanity. Again, if you can just for a second forget about forget about the, the Jewish part of it, just for a second. Even if it weren't Jews, I think I would be proud of the state of Israel, even if it weren't a Jewish state, because it's just amazing what they've been what they've done, what they've proven is possible for humanity. They've proven that so many amazing things can be achieved because of necessity. I mean, Ralph Waldo Emerson, you know, <laughs> need breaks iron, folks. And you, certainly we want to help people who are having a hard time. Certainly we want to be generous. But is it generous and is it loving to tell a group of people that you'll never make it without my help? It's one of the reasons why I'm very, very, very suspicious of the motivations behind things like affirmative action. Is hiring someone who's relatively qualified for a job anyway, 
or accepting someone from a university who already has the commitment to apply to the university and probably is relatively qualified, is that really such an act of charity? Is that really such a good thing to do? Would that really solve the problem of a, of a downtrodden population? I say no. But what I do think it does is it makes the people who are doing that, who, make, who are making those hires and admitting those students, feel really great about themselves. And possibly undeservedly so. What if we say to those people, hey, we're going to, instead of making you use this amount of money that comes from here and that amount of money comes from here, we're going to let you use your own resources instead of having to use our, our schools or our jobs, and we're going to let you create your own. That's what I think is showing true respect to people. And of course, the Jewish people have really found a way to make that work in Israel. And water, the discoveries and the breakthroughs in water are a big example why. I'm Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now on the Nachum Siegel Network. I hope to speak to you again next week.